0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen.
3: And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, something big happened last night. Oh, Lord. I watched The Craft for the first time. And you're how old? Just kidding. I'm 30, and I watched The Craft for the first time. Gosh darn it, Carolina. Yeah. I was raised in a very conservative home, and movies with occult themes were not allowed. What about slumber parties? They weren't allowed. No, I went to <laughs> slumber parties, but I never saw The Craft.
4: I just never saw it. I was obsessed with it. Tell me more. <laughs> I was obsessed with it. I loved that movie. I was equal parts like terrified and adoring of Balk in that movie. Like her use of dark lipstick, I so admired. You can still try to pull it off, Caroline. I was about to say pull it off,
3: decided to add the try to because it's a tough look.
4: It is a tough look and I am very pale. My skin tends to get a little ruddy, especially when I'm embarrassed. And I feel like a dark, dark, almost black red would just not look good on me. Or just make your lips pop.
3: You, <laughs> you never know. That. Uh, I was so surprised watching it that a movie made in 1996... It still felt fresh to me. I mean, maybe it was just like Skeet Ulrich's face just <sighs> shining through on screen. I don't know. Maybe it was their cool semi-coordinated outfits. Maybe it was the soundtrack, which I kind of now want to buy. And yes, on CD, just, you know, for <laughs> nostalgia. Um,
4: but it was really good. Yeah, it's a great movie. I, and then I realized, though... In preparing for this episode, so not only was I, like, super excited to maybe potentially chat about the craft, but I started realizing, like, wait, there are a lot of great witches that I love in movies that I've seen over the course of my life. Like, witches, the movie Witches with Angelica Houston. Yeah, that's the purpose of this entire podcast episode. I know. Well, I was I just enjoyed my trip down memory lane. So should we save some of your favorite witches for later in the podcast?
3: Fine. <sighs> I know, because I'm only asking because I could sit here and, and talk so long. Because also, not as big of a thing, but another thing that happened last night, before I watched The Craft for the first time, I watched Teen Witch for the first time. And teen- I have not seen that. Well, I, here we go. Okay. A witch movie I've seen. <laughs> Buddy, you haven't. How the tables have turned, Caroline.
4: They have, literally. What slumber parties have you not been to? I, You know, so it was either The Craft or uh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Now that I have seen
3: so many times. <sighs> Tragic love story. We'll do another podcast episode on horses and swimming pools. <laughs> so, dear listeners, Halloween is coming up, at least at the time that we are recording this podcast. And we got to talk about witches, and nothing really to do with the history of real, live witches. But witches, especially on screen, because the more you start thinking about the appeal of witches... I'm not talking about, like, evil witchy witches, like the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm talking about, like, witches in the craft, like your Angelica witch in the witches that you love so much. Like, why do we, as ladies love witches so much, because a lot of times witches are associated with evilness, ugliness, spinsterhood, and yet there's this whole other bigger group of witches that are associated with
4: cunning and power and fun. Well, I think even the witches that are associated with evil and ugliness and spinsterhood are still delivering a big old middle finger to convention. True. I mean, especially if we are talking in terms of, like, pop culture. Yes. And and movie and TV representations. When you, any time, I feel like because Hollywood is, is not only sexist, but ageist, any time you have a woman over, like, 30, uh, that's like, oh, my God, how are we going to cast her? Uh, and so, yeah, the fact that a character could potentially be older, she could maybe wear one of those, like, fake witch noses and a fake witch wart, Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, screw you, convention and and beauty norms. So, who was the first witch you saw on screen, Caroline? I don't remember, I don't know. Do you have any hunches? I mean, it was, I mean, speaking of
3: the Wicked Witch, it was probably the Wizard of Oz. I'm guessing mine was the Wizard of Oz, too.
4: Yeah, uh... But it was, it was shortly thereafter. I mean, I know I saw The Wizard of Oz for the first time when I was very, very young, but it wasn't too long after that I saw the Raoul Dahl movie interpretation of, of witches. Yeah. My, I gotta tell you, I am obviously really
3: catching up in terms of pop culture witches because, like I said, growing up, witches were not something that were welcome in my household. And, you know, my parents were doing, doing what they thought was right. But I, I feel a little sad that I'm not as, as witch-knowledgeable as, well, you and, like, all of my peers.
4: <laughs> like anyone of your generation. <laughs> yes.
3: Um, it's fine. But it is it is really fascinating. Even, even I, who <laughs> have not seen all of the possible witch movies there are to see, um, can understand this... Historic symbolism that we do see reflected in a lot of our most beloved witches on screen. Because what do witches represent? I mean, power. They really connote women's power. You have intuition, fertility, sisterhood, spinsterhood even.
4: Yeah, and they're also defying that normal patriotic... Patriotic? Normal patriotic. (laughs) (laughs) They hate this country. (laughs) Um, they're all communists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not to mention, of course, they're defying the normal patriarchal social order. And and what I love, you know, talking about power and the social order and everything, And and I'm going to continue citing the movie Witches, is that these women, for instance, in that movie, all of these witches are together at a convention at a hotel. And it's so funny thinking back on that movie and realizing that the way that strikes me now is like the way that so many business centric like women's organization conferences go i mean they're not witches so what do you mean by that oh well it just it's like it's it's a a witchy version of networking gotcha is what it feels like you've got all of these witches at a convention at a hotel they're having like their annual meeting they're net witching <laughs> yeah that's so perfect that's so perfect can we start that LinkedIn spinoff site netwitching netwitching? No, well, yeah, and we need to actually have that in real life. yeah, yo, oh, yeah, I'm serious. We're gonna host it. We're, we've got so many stuff on ever told you side businesses just <laughs> popping up left <laughs> and right. We should really start to write them down at some point. Hmm.
3: I do like it, though, when listeners will email us in like a few weeks later and like
4: remind us of bands or random products. that we've talked about launching. Yeah. We still get emails about the potential Sminty menstrual cup. Oh, yeah. Menstrual cup. Menstrual cup. Uh, Well, back to witches, though. (laughs) Okay. From periods to witches. I feel like that
3: is a perfect segue. Or a book title from periods to witches. (laughs) Um, Someone who wrote an entire book about witches, Catherine Howe, who wrote the Penguin Book of Witches, put this whole witch symbolism perfectly in an interview with NPR where she said, What made witches dangerous in the early modern period makes them enticing now. Here's a case of a figure, a person, a woman generally, laying claim to power that doesn't belong to her, that should belong only to God or should belong only to people in authority. And she's taking that power for herself.
4: Yeah. And the new inquiry echoed the sentiment. Uh, A little more poetically, I would argue they sounded like they got drunk. They maybe had too much red wine and wrote an ode to witches. Uh, They said, in a male supremacist society, female power must logically appear illogical, mysterious, intimate, threatening. Witch stands for all of those unnameable shadow acts of disappearance and withdrawal, self-cultivation and self-medication that elude the social and sexual order. So,
3: witches, I mean, witches are a lot, to yeah. put it very eloquently.
4: Yeah, wrapped up in that witch hat, you've got a whole lot of messing with convention. So, Hollywood's so-called season of the witch, yeah,
3: Donovan reference, any fans out there, uh, makes so much sense because this is such a rich character to play around with. And it's one that has been really popular in the past four or five years, especially with help from Harry Potter. We have Hermione, who pops up on every single listicle about best, most favorite, awesome
4: witches in pop culture of all time. Well, so does Maggie Smith's character, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's a common one, too. I'm going to admit something. Admit. I have never, never read, nor have I watched... Any Harry Potter. Oh, Caroline, our inbox,
3: I can just hear it filling up right now. I know, I just heard
4: the tippy-typing of people being like, what is wrong with you? And I I don't know. I just let it pass me by as a social phenomenon. Do you need to take a vacation so you can read up, (laughs) Caroline? I'm shaking my head at you, Conker. (laughs) Only for the pronunciation of Caroline. Well, I don't know about any of that, but I do know that Maggie Smith looks great in a witch hat.
3: She does. She does. I mean, I say, you know, uh this fall, bonnets were supposed to be, you know, come into fashion. Is that a
4: true thing? That
3: was a true thing. Bonnets are not going to happen. But I would be behind trying to make witch hats happen.
4: Sure. You know? C- could we get, could we combine the slouchy beanie and the witch hat? Absolutely, Caroline. Um, But back to television.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Again. So, it's really funny to see how the witch craze has been reported in entertainment media. Um, in 2011, the vampire craze kind of gave way to witches on TV. And in the LA Times, Melissa Maris reports, for network seeking female viewers and mean girl heroines, witches offered the perfect double threat. Because witches cast girls quite literally in control, not only of their lives, but of entire worlds. So you have witches appearing that you're in true blood, the CW's The Secret Circle, and a wicked witch slash queen appearance. In Once Upon a Time. So everyone's
4: like, oh my gosh, witches are everywhere. We're having a witch moment. <laughs> and in 2013, we were apparently still having a witch moment, according to Mary McNamara over at the L.A. Times. Uh, she gives the examples of American Horror Story Coven, which is apparently very controversial among people, depending on if you think it's like the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. Oh, we'll talk about it, Caroline. Oh, good. Okay. Also, the witches of East End and witch characters appearing on Sleepy Hollow the originals, Supernatural, and more. And if it sounds like I'm reading off a list, I am because I haven't watched any of these things. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. I'm sorry. Well,
3: she. I mean, there were so many, though, that, A, yes, it does make up a list. And McNamara declares 2013 the year of the witch. Mm. I mean, so, I mean, arguably, we've already passed peak witch. Oh, I don't know. You don't know? Yeah, I mean like I agree. I think that we're we're still really enamored with witches. Um but McNamara really got me thinking a lot about this long standing pop cultural symbolism of witches because um she tidily sums up their appeal to television creators, saying, and a quote, and it's a long quote, but it's a good one <laughs> witches are a handy solution to other more pragmatic narrative problems. They can be old and wise and still beautiful. There's that ageism, Caroline. Mm-hmm. They're allowed to commit acts of fury, sex, and violence, still the hallmarks of important drama that would be far less acceptable from a mortal female character. And they often come in groups, which is how television writers like women. And I'm now imagining Sex in the City. Sex in the City recast as a coven. Were they just a coven the whole time? Yeah. I mean, that just changes everything. It's like Garfield without
4: dialogue. Garfield that- without John. Gotta- no, it's John without Garfield, Sorry. which is so depressing. but no, I think that's such a, a fascinating, perfect quote that hits all of it right on the head in terms of uh allowing women characters to get away with stuff that they wouldn't normally. I mean, that's so it's not necessarily something I think about all the time, but like, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Imagine if you had just your run-of-the-mill average lady on television who was being in some way sort of evil or doing something perceived as evil, we wouldn't have any sympathy for her. Whereas if she's a witch, it's like, oh, well, it makes sense. I love this. Let her do more of it. Well, and interesting, too, to think about the whole
3: age beauty thing that we often see come up with witches where it's so rare to see a woman portrayed as hauntingly beautiful and mesmerizing if she is over a certain age. Right. But that's often so part, like, a a crux of these older, more evil witches. Mm -hmm. Evil witches, you know, you can't be a good witch necessarily and be old and beautiful. But if you're both, then you're probably more evil.
4: I don't know. From my, from my casual witch observations. That's anecdotal. <laughs> well I witch. mean, but that's, that's like such a plot device anyway. I mean, you mentioned how vampires gave way to witches in terms of pop culture craze. It, sort of combining these ideas is the movie adaptation of one of Anne Rice's novels. I can't remember what the title is now, but it's the one where Aaliyah is starring as the ancient vampire queen. Yes. And how gorgeous she is and she's so beautiful and her beauty is this big thing and she's also very young and gorgeous and all of that stuff to, to super emphasize how beautiful she is. But being that she's a vampire queen, she's also a bajillion years old. And it's that same thing. It's like, oh, well, here is a woman of a, of a significant age, but oh, it's, it's just, it's Aaliyah. Don't worry. She's still real pretty.
3: Well, and speaking of the vampire thing too, something, it might have been McNamara, uh, and some other people have pointed out is how interesting it is that which is followed up on the heels of the vampire craze because vampire lore sprang out of Victorian panic over female sexuality, essentially. And so to then have these powerful, often sexual, self-possessed women follow in the wake of the vampire craze might say something, too.
4: Including that I might be reading a lot into television. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, also, uh, pop culturally speaking, um, which is this entire episode, um, more recently, all the representations of vampires, for the most part, have been dudes. Yeah. Like, look at Twilight, you know, like the, the handsome, shiny vampire man boy. Uh, but now you, we're getting more and more witches, and they're, they're all, uh, handsome, handsome women. Some handsome women, (laughs) which
3: is very much a side note. I like the adjective handsome for women. I say we bring
4: it back. Catherine Hepburn, what a handsome woman. I'm going to offer you a transition now, Kristen. Yes. One handsome woman that we can talk about is one Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh,
3: she of bewitched fame? Indeed. Okay, so here's the thing, listeners, to keep in (laughs) mind. As we're talking about all of this symbolism of witches, and especially when it comes to women's power and sexual agency, when we look at old school witches in pop culture... A lot of times the name of the game is to repress your witchiness in order
4: to better fit into society's little boxes. Or to use your powers, however expressed or repressed, to serve the men in your life. So again, going back to Mary McNamara's L.A.
3: Times piece, she notes the social symbolism of witches on TV, starting with... Samantha Stevens, played by nose-twitching Elizabeth Montgomery on Bewitched, which premiered in 1964, notably the same year that the feminine mystique hit
4: bookshelves. Yeah, so at the same time that Betty Friedan is saying that housewives are afraid of asking the question that's bouncing around in their brains of... The question that has no name, Caroline? Is this all? Samantha, the witch, is emphatically saying... Yes, this is all, and it's everything. She, Her entire happiness is wrapped up in her devotion to Darren.
3: And Judy D. O'Reilly wrote an entire book about this so-called bewitched effect and the bewitched archetype. Uh, The book is Bewitched Again, Supernaturally Powerful Women on Television, 1996 to 2011. And she really put a lot of these pieces together.
4: Yeah, it was really interesting reading so deeply into Bewitched because... I had never before felt angry feelings about Bewitched. I'd really never felt feelings about Bewitched at all. It did, it made you upset? <laughs> it did, yeah. It got my panties a little bit in a twist. Oh. I've, I've got to tell you. Well, she quotes Samantha Stevens, which is obviously Elizabeth Montgomery's character in uh, Bewitched, as saying... I happen to think cooking on the stove is more fun than using witchcraft. Lies, Stevens. You know that's a lie. Um, what would Endora say to that? You know? She also quotes TV Guide in a profile of Elizabeth Montgomery and her husband, Bill Asher, who plays Darren, uh, saying that this character of Samantha would rather scrub the floor on her hands and knees for the man she loves. It is emotional satisfaction she craves. And I just, I'm like, I, uh, I'm just imagining, like, being in a real, like, actual adult couple where people have to clean up after each other and, like, take care of a home together. And I'm like, I... Would not rather scrub the floor on my hands and knees as a way to show love. I'd rather use my frickin' witchcraft. Speak for yourself, Listen, Caroline. We all know you love to load the dishwasher. And honestly, I do too. I redo the way that my boyfriend does it.
3: But here's the thing. We might be jumping ahead of ourselves a tiny bit. For listeners who aren't familiar with the Bewitched premise, let's let them know what's going on here. Because it's not just the thing of Samantha Stevens is a 1950s housewife, or should I say 1960s housewife, and also a witch. I mean, the, in the pilot, we have her and Darren get married, and on their wedding night, she finally reveals that she's a witch, and he flips out, and he's like, the only way I'm going to stay married to you is if you keep your witchcraft in check. I didn't marry a witch I married a wife. And also learn how to do all of the domestic goddess stuff. Yeah. And also go to dinner, I think every Friday it is, at his mother's house. So he has this whole list of requirements for her. And Mm -hmm. she is like, okay, I think you're, I mean, your jaw is just so square. I must, I must relent. (laughs) I don't mind. (laughs) But that whole premise was perfectly normal for the audience back then.
5: So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Ravs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
4: Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, in that same TV Guide article that I mentioned, and it was uh, in 1965, there was one, was he a TV executive? He was someone who was commenting on this show, and he said, a witch who's interested in being a housewife to an American male is interesting. If she just went around being a witch, nobody would care. Basically that Darren is uh, Samantha's motivation for doing... Anything. Anything. And it's so fascinating
3: to see how all of the profiles of Elizabeth Montgomery at the time emphasized her devotion to her husband, mm-hmm. who was also a producer on the show. And so they kind of tried to, like, cast them publicity-wise as the real-life bewitched couple. Oh, but don't worry. She loves doing chores. She really loves doing chores. And she never wants to go do press and have to travel without him. So even though she might play this witch... Calm down. She's actually just a wife who, at one point, they were talking about how she still managed to get up before him and make him breakfast in bed with like orange juice and coffee um every morning. Yeah, because
4: because Bill breakfasts in bed, Kristen. Lucky Bill is I know. all I'm saying. I would love to. Well, my boyfriend does actually cook breakfast. Um, I am a I'm a lucky girl. You're a Bill. You're I, a lucky Bill. I am Bill. I am Bill. We're all Bill. Um, <laughs> hashtag. We're all built, um, but it was just one more supernatural sitcoms of that era, which I, th- I think is interesting. Also, in context, you've got "I Dream of Jeannie," "My Living Doll," which that's a robot. Uh, "My Mother the Car," that's a that's a car. Uh, "The Flying Nun," "The Adams Family." Um, these shows are all equating the bizarre, the alien, the magical with the feminine. But like I mentioned earlier, all of these women in these shows have these fantastic extra powers that tended to just be used for the benefit of the men in their lives. Basically, I mean, especially if you look at My Living Doll, which is like it's a robot for the guy. I feel like that could go a really negative yeah. direction. <laughs> and I Dream of Jeannie, she's like so submissive. I, she just, and, and she's adorable. And yes, it's a cute show and it's adorable and all that stuff, but it's such like a capsule of its time of like, I am a magical, empowered woman, but I'm going to set that aside to do whatever I can to empower you, man, in my life. Yeah. And also Caroline, I Dream of Jeannie, Barbara Eden
3: was not allowed to show her belly button on television. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She
4: was the first Taylor Swift.
3: Yeah. She well, wants. Taylor Swift is allowed to, obviously. She just won't. She won't. Um, but if we look at Bewitched, it is interesting, as O'Reilly notes in her book, of how Samantha's witchcraft problematizes the household environment. So she asserts that this witchcraft is symbolizing womanly rebellion. And you do see this, like, marked contrast in how conventionally attractive Samantha is versus Endora, who is her unmarried, wild, red-haired mother who's just flitting about and hates the fact that Samantha is so devoted
4: to Darren. Yeah, I think, hashtag, we're all Endora. Yes. Not that you, okay, wait, before you write me a letter... It's not that we shouldn't be devoted to our loved ones, our partners. But I'm just saying we could all use a little bit more eyeshadow. shadow. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, some do see Bewitched as a landmark for women because of its break from traditional form and for Samantha's ability to wield some power over her household. But it's interesting that you can literally use the same evidence from the show to argue that it's empowering versus it's disempowering. So... You've got things like the idea that Darren, in in the figures of his wife and his mother in law, and and also uh, Samantha's aunts, that he's confronting this like powerful magical matriarchy, and and that is amazing and empowering. Um, you've got the idea that being a housewife, being Darren's wife, and giving up or promising to give up her witchcraft was her choice, and that that's empowering—that she chose that life over another. But the thing is. Her power still is all for the sake of Darren and housework. So she promises him, right, that she's not going to use it. And then when he's away at work, she's like, well, I'll just use a spell here to to do the dishes and have the dishes be clean. And then when Darren is, like, struggling at work, she's like, well, I'll just use a spell to, like, help him along. But the thing is, like you said, her magic always ends up, like, causing wacky hijinks to happen, to ensue, and causes problems. So for that reason,
3: O'Reilly is less convinced that she, that Samantha is as empowered of a character as we really, really, really want her to be,
4: yeah. Using that same evidence of choosing housewifery, mm-hmm. um, whereas some people would say, "Hey, the choice is empowering." Sh- some other people would argue, "Well, she chose the safe, non-magical option." But really fascinating, nonetheless.
3: To just consider it in that cultural context because it does seem to present just a snapshot of like uh, of things that were happening beyond the set and outside of mm-hmm. of people's homes as times were starting to change for women. And speaking of that, um O'Reilly notes how in the seventies these more supernatural women, like say, I dream of Jeannie or Bewitched give way to super heroines. So you have Wonder Woman and the Bionic Woman, for instance. Uh, and then in the eighties and nineties You have superpowered women focused on, quote, proving themselves to male authority figures and using their powers to serve others and fearing repercussions if their powers are revealed. And this is a continual theme of hitting up against male Mm -hmm. authority figures and of the fear of being othered, essentially, by virtue of your power being put on public display.
4: Yeah, she cites shows like Charmed, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, And Buffy, she says, they presented a veneer of empowerment while facing constraint after constraint. And I wasn't really into Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I was super into Buffy. I watched Charmed in the beginning. And I just love to think of Shannon Doherty as a witch. I just think that 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 was perfectly cast. She's got a witchy face. Well, yeah, and she's got a witchy reputation. (laughs) She's got a witchy reputation. I would take that as a compliment. I would not mean it otherwise.
3: Um, And it is in this era that these pop cultural witches are often considered freaks and are still fighting against domestic related constraints, not terribly removed from Samantha Stevens, although Buffy probably far more removed. Uh, But you still have, you know, like Sabrina having to deal with things at school and at her house. And a lot of times, like the girls in Charmed are like at their house. Right. And like dealing with. Dealing with life as three sisters who are witches. And handsome, magical men. Oh, man. (laughs) Gotta love a handsome, magical man. And this was something, too, that jumped out to McNamara in writing about pop culture's love of witches in the L.A. Times. Because she says that these, what she calls, supernaturally powerful women are usually under watch by male authority figures and are usually compelled to use their power in service of other people rather than their self. Whereas she writes in stark contrast, supernaturally powerful male characters found on programs such as Smallville and the dead zone do not experience these same constraints. So it's like, even when we're witches
4: or we're supernaturally powered in some kind of way, we're still women. Yeah, and one of the examples that she cites, and speaking of Buffy, is Buffy's relationship, uh, not a very good relationship with her high school principal who expels her because he thinks that she killed another slayer when, in fact, that slayer was killed by a vampire. Take a breath. Um But, yeah, and so there's that, like, male authority, male power uh, up against, butting up against, like, sort of a more innocent, spunky, but powerful young girl. So basically, which is...
3: Are us hashtag hashtag. We have so many hashtags <laughs> from this episode. I know witches are us. Oh, that would be a great store. That would be a good store. another <laughs> side business for us, Caroline. The empire continues to grow. I know. Um, but here's the thing: it is usually a very limited portrayal of who us is. If we if we look at most of our pop cultural witches, they're typically white, middle class, conventionally attractive, straight and able-bodied, but, I mean, we would argue that maybe it has to be this way in order for Hollywood to sign off on it. I mean, if they're going to build a whole franchise around it, then, yeah, you, you've got to make them um, attractive in this way, because which crones, those evil old warty crones can only be evil, and the prettiness mollifies the transgressive aspects of practicing witchcraft. So basically, it's like if Sabrina the Teenage Witch were an unfortunate looking girl, would she have been as popular or did we need her to look kind of cute in order for us to be like, okay, cool that we like that combination of like you've got a cute face and you can also be witchy. It helps
0: that she was Clarissa explains it all. I mean, that's true.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, you've got the example also, though, of Melisandra on Game of Thrones, who is, like, exceedingly beautiful and always, even though it's so cold outside and she's always in the snow, she's wearing dresses that are cut down to her belly button. Melisandra, come on, I know your hair doesn't keep you that warm. Put on a shirt. Do you want a hoodie? God, I just always want to give her a hoodie. Well, Caroline, you clearly don't know that witch blood is much hotter than human blood. <laughs> she is always setting people on fire. Uh, so that's a thing. But, I mean, a counterexample would be True Blood's black male witch, Lafayette.
3: Very true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there have been... A few more examples of diversifying Mm -hmm. witches, probably most prominently of late, would be American Horror Story Coven, which presented age-wise and uh, ethnicity-wise a far more diverse coven than we've probably ever seen on network television. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people were pretty disappointed with it in terms of how... Ryan Murphy, I mean, and, and this is something that um, Ryan Murphy, I think, just kind of tends to do with a lot of his shows. And yes, I have been watching Scream Queens is focusing the plot more around, quote unquote, catfighting among the witches. And also some kind of straight up racisty <laughs> portrayals of the black witches that left a lot of people scratching their heads. Um, so a lot of people felt disempowered by Coven.
4: Yeah, I talked to uh, Holly of Stuffy Mist History Class about this because she was like, what are you guys doing this week? So I'm like, which is, oh my God, you have to watch American Horror Story, Kevin." And what does she think about it? She freaking loved it. Really? She strongly disagrees with the idea that A, all they're doing is portraying these women as catfighting and infighting, and B, that it's disempowering at all. Granted, I mean, she's a super fan and all that stuff. Like, I've never seen it. All I know is that I, <laughs> Kristen and I read this article um, that was describing how disappointing it was for people who wanted it to have been so much more for, for showing both powerful and empowered women working together and not just focused on men or relationships or marriage and babies or anything like that, um, and how it fell short in a lot of people's minds. Well, I mean, that was one article though, oh, no, yeah, many. But so what though did Holly like about it, aside from like disagreeing with what critics had to say? Oh, I mean, she she completely on the opposite end of it thought it was empowering. And she thought it was, she just loves witchy things and thought that these women were incredible and that Jessica Lang and Angela Bassett were incredible. She loved the relationships that these women had and that they had power. She, she loves Kathy Bates and thought Kathy Bates was great, although several places that we looked at had Kathy Bates as like the most problematic, but I don't know, I haven't seen it. So.
3: Maybe, well, it could also be an example of one of those things where it's like everything you like will ultimately be problematic. Yeah. That, that that is a true statement. Always, <laughs> always. And maybe we should have Holly back on just to talk about Coven. I know. Doesn't matter if Halloween has long passed. Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, nevertheless, any kind of quote unquote problematic portrayals aside, and I only say problematic in that goofy voice because yes, it has become a word that is bandied about far too much, and it's kind of losing its meaning. But. Um, all of these witches that we're talking about still often make, for a vast majority of us, ultra-satisfying female characters. We love to see witches. Mm -hmm. So... Who are our favorites? Because one of my, one of, one thing that delighted me the most to discover in researching for this episode is just how many best of lists there are. It's like, oh, if yeah. you have a blog, if you have a lady site of some sort, you gotta have some kind of roundup of your favorite witches. Well, I
4: think it's an excellent convergence of things we've talked about before in terms of like fandom and girls fandom in particular, and the fact that you've got these characters who are female and who are empowered to some degree. And so it makes sense to me that you would have a bunch of like top 10, top 20, top a million uh, witch characters on television and movies. Well, and one thing uh, that didn't strike me until Kelly Beesman over at Jezebel pointed it out
3: was that if you have a show or a movie about witches, it probably automatically passes the Bechdel test because you have a group of women with names talking to each other and probably not about dudes all the time.
4: Not about dudes all the time. Although, you know, one of my favorite, 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 favorite witch movies is Hocus Pocus. And I would have to go back and see for sure because the whole thing is throughout that whole movie, they're so trying to, uh, they're trying to destroy Thackeray Binks. Who is a little boy who then turns into a cat. Uh have you seen have you seen Hocus Pocus? No. Oh God, it's so good. We should totally <laughs> I don't know if anyone would tune in for like a two hour periscope, but we should totally periscope us watching that. Or at least live tweet it. It is my favorite. But yeah, they they are very concerned with, with killing Thackeray Binks. And so it's a fabulous movie, but they do talk about a boy quite a bit. Do they have a conversation just about the cat, maybe?
3: Do they just <laughs> the refer to it as the cat? Maybe that could count. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's have an event where we live tweet, checking to see if Hocus Pocus passes the Bechdel test. Hello. I'm sure it does at some point. That's that's the stuff that the internet is made of, Caroline.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, early on in the movie, I think they're just like casting spells and concerned with each other. So Yes. <laughs> having makeover montages.
3: (laughs) Oh, wait, no, that's another movie. Um, So if we were to amass
4: our witch squad, Mm -hmm. hashtag witch squad goals, who would be in it? Well, for sure, I would say the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus. I would also say the two ants. And the two nieces from, uh, Practical Magic, which yeah. is another one of my favorite, favorite movies. Sandra Bullock classic. Well, also Stevie Nicks killing it on the soundtrack. Cause, you know, she, her whole witchy woman thing. You know, Rhiannon, uh, yeah, that, all that stuff. Oh, keep, keep going. Oh, no, Please. no, no, I, I will not. Uh, I'd also want, um, Nancy Downs from The Craft, which is Fariza Balks character, just to like, be my muscle. But also, we can't leave out Robin Tunney from that movie. She played Sarah because she's like the good witch. Yeah. I liked, I liked her a lot. Nancy Downs. I'm sorry, I don't think that Nancy could
3: be part of my witch squad because well, it, her power might get out of control and I would have to bind
4: her and then she'd <sighs> find out that I bound her and then we'd have a fight. No, I'm just saying, we would just continually bind her. Just we, keep that we do binding her. that's all we when yeah. we hang out. Nancy, would you cut it out and then we bind her? Nice. <sighs> let's bind Nancy again. <laughs> She's getting out of control.
3: Um what about what about Hermione? Would you want Hermione there? Or would she call too many of the shots? Oh, I don't know.
4: I haven't, I don't, I have no cultural (laughs) reference for Harry Potter, but I mean, I know a lot of people love Hermione and, and, uh, her real life equivalent. Emma Watson Watson, is, is like all hashtag he for she. So, I mean, (laughs) she can come along.
3: Emma Watson, this is your open invitation to join Stuff I've Never Told You's Witch Squad. (laughs) Our coven. Someone let her press person, no. Um, you know who I would not invite in my witch squad? Oh, who? Having just seen it, and I haven't been able to get this off my chest yet this episode. Okay. Louise Miller, played by Robin Lively of Teen Witch. Because Teen Witch, while it does have some of the best rap scenes <laughs> ever put on film, um, I did not... Support the premise of that movie where she learns that she's a witch Uh and she uses her witch power to make this handsome LL Bean catalog looking guy fall in love with her. Uh And it suggests in the film, through some very close up, very tongue heavy French kissing in a like random barn or something that they run across, that they have sex. And she's like, oh no, what am I gonna do? Uh, but the moral of the story is that he fell in love with her for realsies and she doesn't need to be a witch anymore because now her hair's big oh. and the popular guy still likes her even though
4: they've had sex. And it was just awful. So it's just a, an, when is it, when was it made? It, I am guessing in like the late 80s, early 90s. So it's like an 80s update of Bewitched, sort of. Like she's giving up her power for a dude. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Huh. Um, I was surprised at how how
4: upset I was at the end. The credits started rolling, and I was like, "Is this it? This can't be it." Well, I would also want to invite. Speaking of of the movie, which is starring Angelica Houston, I would also I would not invite her because she's evil, but I would invite the main character boys. Aunt, who's the good witch. She's literally dressed in white and she's blonde compared to Angelica Houston, who's dressed in black and has black hair. Um, And this woman is like super, oh, no, it's not his aunt. His aunt takes him to the conference. It's the white witch at the end who comes and turns him from a mouse back into a boy. I am sorry, listeners. But that woman, I think she drives a convertible. I would invite her. Well, this sounds like a pretty solid witch squad. So far, yeah. Um, But I'm sure that listeners have more
3: suggestions for our witch squad. Who else should we invite? Oh, they'll probably say Willow from Buffy. Willow. We haven't mentioned Willow. Yeah. I I would say, well, you don't want evil Willow, as long as it's good Willow. Good Willow. Have her come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, also, too, Willow, talk about some TV history. One of the first positive portrayals of a lesbian couple on television. Yeah. We got to do a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode at some point, Caroline. Let's go back and rewatch all of it. (gasps) Let's watch some Hocus Pocus. Let's watch some Buffy. Let's... Well,
4: well, we have to quit our day jobs to do this. No, but... no, no,
3: no, no, it's just teleworking.
4: <laughs> oh, is that what t- I've been teleworking wrong. Yes, <laughs> yes. Listeners, don't
3: email our bosses. Well, send us all of your witchy suggestions and any theories as to why witches are so enduring. Was there anything that we missed in this witch conversation? Because there really are so many witches on film. Big screen, small screen to choose from that we couldn't possibly mention them all, including one last one, Caroline. A movie that I want to go back and watch is 1942's I Married a Witch starring Veronica Lake, Ooh. who was probably the most dazzling witch because that hair is perfection. Yeah. So with that, send us your witchy emails. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us, hashtag We Are All Endora. At Mom Stuff Podcast, or message us on Facebook, and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
4: I have a letter here from Beth in response to our Athleisure episode. She says, "I love the show. I look forward to these biweekly forays into feminist topics. I just listened to your Athleisure episode, and I felt that I had to write in." You mentioned that the rise of athleisure has led to women not dressing for a male gaze, but I have found the opposite to be true. As a woman who comes from a religious background, too many times have I heard about the sin of the yoga pant. And I appreciate that you used the Stacey London singular pant. Uh, she says these comments, made mostly by men, point to how yoga pants help accentuate a woman's curves, driving men to a lusty distraction. Very rarely, though, is the discussion balanced, saying that while female clothing may be enticing to the male gaze, it's ultimately the man's responsibility for how he responds. Instead, it quickly devolves into slut-shaming, making women feel guilty for wearing almost any article of clothing that they find comfortable and or attractive. And with fashions changing, modesty is a constantly moving target that unfortunately seems to be predominantly from a male point of view. As a feminist within this conservative community, I can tell you it really steams my beans to feel subjected to these arbitrary rules. So while I've been trying to open up communications on what modesty is within my circle of influence, I also have been buying the most comfortable and cute leggings and yoga pants that I can find. I'll admit that some days when I don them, I can still feel a twinge of guilt or shame, but I try to shrug that off and walk through my life with my head held high and my stomach comfortably supported by elastic. Thanks again for such a great podcast. I always find the topics insightful and have many great discussions with friends that have started with the phrase, so I was listening to this feminist podcast today. Well, thank you, Beth. Loved your letter. Well I've got a letter here from Jen also about our athleisure
3: episode and she writes, I had to laugh because as I'm writing this I'm at work in a full riding habit. Breeches, riding socks, belt, tucked in shirt and vest. Boots and chaps are in the car to avoid tracking dirt everywhere. Riding clothes probably aren't what you were thinking about when you were making this podcast, but this is beginning to be more common among equestrians. The clothes we buy for riding tend to be fairly expensive as well as fashionable and flexible. The breeches I'm wearing now are literally the most comfortable pants I've ever owned, which makes sense if they need to flex and move with you as you move on the horse. I'm wearing these today because I plan on going riding right after work, but there's definitely a status symbol of wearing riding clothes in public. Not to be snobby, but there's something satisfying about wearing actual equestrian apparel while everyone around you is wearing equestrian-inspired accessories that would fall apart the minute you mounted a horse. It's just the little thing that makes me smile. Anyway, I love the show. Please keep the episodes coming. They make my workday fly by. And your letters help our workday fly by. And you can send them to momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources, so you can read more about all that symbolism you never knew existed and bewitched, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
5: Let's go places.